to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hey, everyone. This is our exciting second and very special CADCA-sponsored High Truths episode. Today, we'll be addressing tobacco and the youth vaping epidemic. And we all know that we are living in a worldwide COVID pandemic involving the entire globe, But in addition, the United States is experiencing a vaping epidemic. Vaping is also known as e-cigarettes, E for electronic. And you might remember that just before COVID hit, we had a CDC declared epidemic of a brand new disease called E-Valley, electronic cigarette or vaping use associated lung illness. 68 young people died due to vaping injury and to their lung injury. And over 2000 were hospitalized throughout the United States. Just yesterday, my emergency department patient with chest pain showed me his vaping pen and big flavored nicotine that he used for his nicotine addiction. And thus, this CADCA-sponsored High Truth episode is titled, Jeez, to address the youth e-cigarette epidemic. CADCA is one of my favorite world organizations. Really, everyone loves CADCA, the Community Anti-Drug Coalitions of America. Every year, they invited me to speak at their National Leadership Forum and Mid-Year Training Institute. CADCA is known for their signature training events. The conferences are one of my favorites because of the engaged prevention professionals who attend to ask questions, learn, and implement the best ideas that will improve their hometown. I cherish our prevention professionals because they are not enough of them, and yet our future, our youth, depend on their work. CADCA represents over 5,000 community coalitions that involve individuals from key sectors, including schools, law enforcement, youth, parents, healthcare, media, and more. CADCA has members in every U.S. state and territory and in more than 30 countries around the world. The CADCA coalition model emphasizes the power of community coalitions to prevent substance misuse through collaborative community efforts. CADCA believes, and I certainly agree, that prevention of substance use and misuse before it starts is the most effective and cost-efficient way to reduce substance use and its associated costs. Benjamin Franklin would certainly agree, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And thus, this episode of High Truths is dedicated to the discussion of prevention. Let's start our discussion with a question from our CADCA listener, Gabriella Williamson. What can communities do to help prevent youth from using e-cigarettes? Thank you, Gabriella, for your timely question. I love that you care about your fellow youth. And to answer your question, we have an expert, an expert from CADCA, our sponsor for this episode. And you will realize that CADCA has so many experts and we have just the right one for you. Uh, This question is going to be answered by our tobacco and vaping CADCA expert, Andrew Romero. Andrew Romero is the director of CADCA's Geographic Health Equity Alliance, GHEA. 
This is a CDC-funded national network which works closely with the State Departments of Health to reduce tobacco and cancer-related health inequities. In his work, he has reached various state and rural communities across the country. Prior to leading GHEA, he served as director at the health policy for the Florida Department of Health in Alakua County. Andrew is passionate about giving tools to others so they can do their best work. He volunteers as mentor and assists nonprofits in management and leadership practices. He serves as the city of Alexandria, Virginia Public Health Advisory Commission. Andrew Romero's bio is included in the High Truths show notes. Andrew, welcome to High Truths. Hey, thank you for having me. It is such an honor to have you, and we have such an important topic to talk about. But first, Andrew, tell us about your journey to CADCO. Where were you exposed to drugs as a kid, and how did this important prevention work um, become um, your journey? So I, um, I, have, a, I have a background in uh, education. I have, a, I have a degree in the Social Foundations of Education from the University of Florida, and you know, it's, I've always wanted to um, help improve communities. And um, when I graduated with my master's, I was looking for employment. And as luck would have it, I had a colleague of mine who uh, basically said, hey, I work at the health department. We have a tobacco program or working with youth. Are you interested in getting started? And uh, I didn't really know much about uh, public health at that point. Um, but I uh, sometimes, you know, I, I'm a millennial, believe it or not. And uh, the economy wasn't so kind to us when we when we uh, graduated, and so I needed employment, and so I took it. And it was one of those chance things that I got started in a. I was lucky enough to get started in a career that has been incredibly rewarding and fulfilling, uh, and that I love. I mean, I, I absolutely love my work. And so I started about uh, 13 years ago working at the Florida Department of Health and um, working in youth programs and then in tobacco control policy. Uh, and after you know 10, 10 years there uh, of building local public health programs and working in my community, I decided, uh, hey, maybe I can try to do some good at the national level. And I uh, took a job at Katka. That is great. And it's a great place to be. I think everyone I've met at Katka loves their, loves their job and has a, a lot of passion about what they do. Um, the Surgeon General declared e-cigarettes an epidemic in youth. Can you tell us what is an e-cigarette or a vape? So uh, an e-cigarette is, uh, uh, you know, it, it almost uh, is what it sounds like. It looks like a cigarette, but uh, there is no tobacco in it, uh, except um, perhaps the derivative in the nicotine in a cartridge. But it's basically an electronic device that comes in all different shapes and sizes that um, you can puff on and basically get um, a hit of nicotine from. Uh, sometimes other things can be put in there. Uh, other flavorings and additives, um, sometimes uh, um, uh, things like THC can be smoked in as well, but typically e-cigarettes are uh, electronic devices through which you can uh, smoke nicotine. And they look, they look really attractive. I mean, they're electronic, they make big fumes of smoke, they're advertised as a health product, like, hey, why don't you help quit smoking? And so it makes it sound like it's healthy and it's, it's not tobacco, so it sounds better, but it's like, it's just as much nicotine. It's, it's, that's also not healthy for you. And uh, they're cute. I've seen these devices are very cute and you could hide them in your, like your hoodie string, or it looks like a, you know, a little memory stick or or in a soda can. 
Um, I had one patient of C in the emergency department. I actually had to send him to the burn unit because he was putting it in his pocket and it's uh, it just uh, exploded oh, and he no. got burns on his hand and on his leg. The, I think it's the older versions that can spontaneously combust. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, it's a problem because it looks so attractive, but, and why is there an epidemic of, of, of vaping and e-cigarettes? Well, well, first let me, let me go back to your, if you don't mind your previous statements you made about all the variety of shapes and sizes and, uh, e-cigarettes are actually, um, regulated by the FDA. Um, but I think the FDA, the FDA basically, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to explain this is in my non-legal regulatory language, uh, but the FDA basically gave e-cigarette manufacturers and still does gives them an opportunity to either go through a process where e-cigarettes can be um, uh, evaluated and certified as smoking cessation products, or they can be sold as a tobacco product. And I think most just about all the different products, e-cigarette products on the market, choose not to go and be evaluated uh, as a um, cessation product, but instead they try to be a, um, I guess the equivalent of a, of a tobacco product, which has far less regulation. And so we, we haven't, I'm gonna say that we in, in public health and have not been quite as good at regulating um, uh, I think the regu- the bar for regulation for, for e-cigarettes uh, that are sold as, as tobacco products is rather low. And so we have had a lot of innovation in the marketplace that we as public health have not been able to keep up with. And that includes things like shapes and sizes. It includes flavors and includes marketing. But, you know, I, you may have heard that it's been like the sale of e-cigarettes has been a bit like a wild, wild west out there. I mean, just if you can imagine it, it's probably made its way into an e-cigarette. Um, at this point. Um, so uh, to get to ba- back to your question as to why we have an epidemic, mm-hmm. uh, I, yeah. I, the, um, I think the, you may have heard of the manufacturer Juul. Uh, and I think yeah. Juul has uh, been, is perhaps one of the largest players in, in uh, marketing. They're, they're the kingpin of, of vaping products. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> That's correct. And, you know, I think all the e-cigarette manufacturers have been using similar tactics, but Juul sort of led the way in using what I would say would be the tobacco industry's playbook. Uh, And so, you know, at this point, we shouldn't be surprised about what they've done, but they've basically used trendy marketing uh, that has been targeted towards kids. They've marketed in places like uh, advertisements in magazines and social media, and then they used uh, flavors to make their products even more attractive uh, and uh, and easy to basically to perhaps start using, and then the concentration of nicotine in these products is so high that uh, once once basically kids start using them, they get addicted relatively quickly. So it's this combination of of marketing that draws the kids to the products, the flavor basically gets them to try it, and then the nicotine gets them addicted and keeps coming back. And it turns out. Uh, that Juul is very good uh, at uh, marketing to our kids and having a product that is highly yeah. addictive. And, you know, it took off. I guess the rest is very unfortunate history. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, the data speaks to itself, right? Then the number of, of youth that are vaping now is just going up and up and up. And that's what is the definition of the the epidemic. Yeah, I uh, I have I have some figures, but, uh, you know, the I guess we have somewhat... 
somewhat uh, better news than we did last year. Um, but you know, we have in, in 2020 about 1.8 million fewer youth e-cigarettes, uh, used e-cigarettes than in 2019. But unfortunately, uh, I think our 2020 number was so astronomical um, that uh, I think we have now, it, it looks like 27.5% uh, um, of high school students used e-cigarettes in 2019, and now it's about 20% of high school students. And that's still, that's still a remarkably large number of youth in our schools that are addicted to a product. Yeah, and it's terrible because, you know, it's being... Okay, it's not tobacco. Tobacco is a plant, but it's nicotine. It's the worst part of the plant. It's like saying, well, it's not marijuana. It's just THC. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the worst part of the plant. Um, and I think the reason the numbers are low is because when the E-Valley cases, the, the lung injury, the popcorn lung injury, and yeah. kids were dying, kids were dying from vaping. And I think that word got out um, and, and helped. Uh, cut the use. At the same time, um, the jewel industry, where, where they were, um, they were criticized for creating all these cute little flavors. You know, I got you know, and um, they they did a study. Do you know that study where they? It was a 2019 study by Jewel, and they with the um, monitoring the future survey, and they looked at 10th and 12th graders and asked them, "What's your favorite flavor?" And uh, um, mint and mango was number one. Oh, really? Yeah. And mango was the favorite for the eighth grader. So they actually, you know, met with uh, FDA and they agreed to pull all their flavors except menthol. They kept menthol because they say, well, that's the least flavor favorite. And they, they kept that. So, yeah. Well, I think they had menthol... all bubble gum, you know, what could be dangerous about bubble gum, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, we'll probably talk about menthol a little bit later, but mint and menthol are still, you know, some of the primary ways that youth are getting into and experimenting with tobacco products, right? So it's unfortunate that, you know, as things have played out in, in the United States that we, we, for some reason, don't consider mint and menthol a flavor, but, you know, it is still, um, you know, we, we can talk later about um, uh, disparities in amongst tobacco use amongst African-Americans. And I, there's a conversation happening at the national and state and local level about, um, about menthol bans and banning all flavors, including menthols. But I, you know, I, I'm sure the industry and Jewel knows that mint and menthol is a very popular flavor for them. And well, and they they were under pressure to pulling flavors for children. And so they did it for children. But um, if we're talking health disparities, as you mentioned, um, menthol is is a favorite for African-Americans. So they they pulled it for the kids, but they they kept it for another pair, uh, population, which is, you know, really not fair. And I, and I, you know, some of the, um, you have to forgive me, I don't have these exact uh, data points on hand, but I, if I can recall correctly, I, I know that uh, I think the LGBTQ plus population also uses uh, menthols at uh, higher rates as, as, as likely do Hispanics and Latinos. So it is, it is something that wow. in the national discourse um, gets associated with African-Americans, but again, menthols are, are um, not just an African-American issue. So we talk about tobacco, a public health success story, right? The United States really led the world and is still leading the world in decreasing smoking. And as a public health policy expert, um, what do you think that the policies are that led to this success? 
Okay, this is my favorite question. Uh, you know, this is the kind of stuff that I <laughs> geek out about for hours. And, you know, one of the nice things about, you know, since moving to the national scene, I, I have had the opportunity to hear other experts talk about why, why we've been so successful. And, you know, I, I, um, tobacco control has been very good at figuring out what works and what doesn't work and ensuring that we put our resources in things that work. And I'll talk about that in just a second, but, you know, I, is, tobacco use is the, you know, is the number one cause of preventable death and disease. And we have, it's been, killing Americans and humans across the world for so long that we have 50 plus years of, of evidence and science where we've been trying to figure out how do we deal with this problem and what works and what works at addressing tobacco use. Not many other fields of public health have that much literature to support them. I think we, you know, we would be lucky if in other areas of public health, we knew with certainty, oh yes, this is exact, this is gonna work exactly like this. But tobacco uh, control does. Um, and we have been working on those things um, in, in a couple of different areas. And I'll share what the, what the CDC's uh, tobacco control program goals are. But basically, we work on policies and strategies that prevent initiation. We work uh, to reduce exposure to secondhand smoke. We work to help people quit. And then, you know, as smoking has continued to decline, it, those gains have not been shared by all populations. So we're also now particularly focused on reducing health disparities. And so we've been working on policies across those four goals. Again, prevention, reducing secondhand smoke exposure, helping people quit and reducing disparities. And I wanna introduce a concept that I, you know, that's been new to me for the past, like uh, maybe, maybe the past two to three years, uh, I discovered it. And it's called the tobacco control vaccine. And it is a, it's, a, it's a heck of a time to have a vaccine as a metaphor. But the idea is kind of like the COVID vaccine. <laughs> no, not quite. This is more of a framework. Uh, and okay. the idea, you know, you know, this is, of course, I think was in, in, invented uh, as a framework prior to uh, our pandemic. Uh, but the, the, the framework basically says that we have four interventions that we know that if communities and states and across the country, we implement them, we will prevent tobacco use. And so the elements are and we'll talk about this in a bit more detail, but just, just to, to get us started. Price increases is number one. We have smoke-free policies is number two. We have cessation access is number three. And then we have hard-hitting media campaigns. And again, the idea is, is that if communities and states and across the nation, we implement these four things, we will see gains in reducing tobacco use. That's great. And so there, there's a strategic plan. Um, and I would um, say that while tobacco has been a public health success story, vaping has been a public health failure. Um, an important statistic that I got from a paper shared from the CDC Office on Smoking and Health is for every one adult who maybe, maybe, and not even in the United States, but in Europe, stops smoking by using a vape product, we create 80 new adolescent vapors who otherwise would never have started in the first place. So I think that that's been a absolutely horrible public health decision to bring that. I mean, after we've done so much good in tobacco, all that work, it seems like that's kind of like out the door now and as we're bringing in all the vaping. Um, so what's your 
perspective on the youth vaping epidemic? And are you drawing from the, you know, those four um, strategies in the, the tobacco vaccine? Are you applying that also to, to vaping? Uh, I, I think that's in best case scenario for us. First, first, let me say that, you know, you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, I, we are very concerned as a public health community that the great strides that we took to reduce tobacco use are being undone. And in some cases, this is, you know, I guess this is, it's being undone in the sense that we, we don't know these youth that are addicted to nicotine are now, are really addicted. And uh, we don't know, is that going to turn into dual usage later, right? I, if, if, um, if teens are addicted to Juul now, may they start? Might they start using other forms of tobacco products later? Um, but also, we know that the industry, the e-cigarette industry, um, uh, is also trying to undermine things like clean indoor air laws uh, in places, right? And trying to make it harder for people to be able to, uh, uh, pardon me, make it trying to undo the laws that prohibit people from smoking in places like restaurants, work sites, and bars. Uh, so that progress may be undone as well. So, uh, but back to your question, I think the, the best evidence we have basically tells us that the, tobacco, the elements that I mentioned of the tobacco control vaccine are going to be some of the most effective things that we can do to reduce e-cigarette use. Um, and I, I can talk about those in a, in a little bit more detail, but like, let's take, let's take price, for example. Price uh, increases that often come as, um, you know, may come in, you, you know, typically this is, you know, perhaps in the form of a tax at the state level, um, but increasing price is one of the most effective interventions that we have in, in, in tobacco control, period. And price, you know, these policies that I mentioned in the tobacco control vaccine aren't just, they don't actually just work in prevention, but they actually work to not just help prevent use, but also help people quit. And if you raise the price of a pack of cigarettes by a dollar, we, we've been doing this for so long in this field of public health that we now know how many people are going to uh, um, quit smoking when you raise the, the price by a dollar. We also know that when you raise the price of cigarettes by a dollar, we know how many youth are going to, um, how our youth initiation rates are going to decline. And the, the same principles that are, uh, that support this intervention or the same research that supports an intervention, this intervention uh, also applies to e-cigarettes, which is why you're seeing a number of states across the United States actually work on taxing e-cigarettes. No, I think it, that's great. I mean, and I think you even have a thing, the, the whole point is to increase the price to make it costly, like painful, like, oh, do I really want all my money going to that? Um, and, uh, taxes is one way. And one of the other things I've seen in your presentation is if people don't like the word tax, then it's include increasing the floor price. Yeah. So, so you're right. And I, let me just say that youth in particular are price sensitive, right? So on the one hand for people that, you know, have are already addicted, um, increasing price is, is a little bit of a nudge, uh, to, to get them to think about perhaps quitting, right? And then it's our job as a public health community that when people are trying to quit, that we make sure that they have adequate resources, like cessation resources to quit. But for youth, youth are particularly price sensitive and increasing the price is gonna help ensure that they don't get started because it's an expensive habit to pick up when they're thinking about doing it or that they'll, they'll give up before they become too addicted, right? So usually taxes are something that happens at the state level. And, you know, I, uh, I, my work in many respects um, is, is helping local communities understand what they can do and what you can do at a local level to address these issues. And so taxes sometimes 
may not be something you can do locally, but we, we have this new newish area of tobacco control called retail strategies. And going back to the vaccine metaphor for just a second, um, you know, the, the CDC basically says those four things that I mentioned in the tobacco control vaccine, the price increases, the smoke-free policies, the cessation access and the media campaigns, those are, are tried and true things that we know work. Um, but they, they, building on this vaccine metaphor, have this idea uh, called uh, booster policies. And one of the one of the things that we our primary form of a booster policies is things that we can do in the communities uh, that we're calling retail strategies. Basically, think about stuff that happens in stores and convenience stores and retail outlets. And so, one of the one of the things that we can do to increase price in communities, actually, uh, not through a tax, is to um, is to raise the price through these alternative methods, and that might be. Um, that might be things like a minimum floor price, as you mentioned, where you basically say e-cigarettes or tobacco products have to be sold uh, above a certain price, you know, just arbitrarily like $5 or something like that, right? Uh, another way, we know the industry is really good at discounting and promotions. And so one of the things you can do locally is you can actually, you can't, interestingly, you can't prohibit coupons from being given out because I, you know, I'm not an attorney or a lawyer, but I think there's free speech issues and coupons, giving out coupons may be a free speech thing, but you can prohibit the redemption of coupons. Uh, and doing that then keeps prices a bit higher. Uh, and then, you know, for things like little cigars uh, and, um, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure if this applies to e-cigarettes, but we can also uh, establish a minimum package size all ways of basically increasing price and making that barrier to entry for youth a little bit higher. You, you can do it for e-cigarettes because the patient that I told you who showed me his uh, vaping pen, he was telling me that it looked like a pretty big pen, but he goes, oh no, they make them even bigger. And then he had a whole bottle of the liquid um, nicotine, that he, flavored nicotine that he puts it in. And it was a very big bottle. So you could sell a smaller bottle. Oh, well, okay. Yes. So thank you. I, uh, you know, there's, well, I have, well, I, I continue to learn in this role at CADCA and, and you know, it's been a while, I mean, particularly during COVID, I, it's been a while since I've been in a convenience store or a, a vape shop to check out how, how the market is innovating, but that, that makes sense. And I think you showed, you showed me a, um, a map that, and I think it showed that New York and Connecticut had the highest prices for um, a pack of cigarettes. Yeah. So, you know, one of the, just the, the way that the United States governs itself is that, you know, we give powers to the states to decide, um, you know, how, how, they, how they should best govern themselves. And so this means that cigarette taxes and laws relating to tobacco products and e-cigarettes are really going to be different from state to state. And unfortunately, uh, you know, we, while we have some states that have really high taxes on, on tobacco products and even e-cigarettes, we have some states that aren't doing so well. And you know, my, a lot of my work focuses on those states where cigarette taxes and other public health interventions uh, practically don't exist. So a lot of states in the Southeast uh, in particular uh, don't have laws protecting uh, its citizens from uh, secondhand smoke. For example, you can still smoke in many restaurants in states in the Southeast, uh, and the taxes are really, really low, which means that cigarette prices are low, which means it's easier, or any cigarette prices are low, making it easier for kids to get started. So Gabriella's question, how do we prevent e-cigarette use? What are the, what are the strategies? Is it those, uh, those uh, 
four-point vaccine? I, I would say that, yeah, for sure that uh, the principles of this vaccine, the elements or the interventions in this vaccine, plus some of the booster strategies. So, you know, the, 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 the elements of the vaccine, again, are price increases. And so we can find ways through either state level taxes or locally to increase price of e-cigarettes. I think strong laws that prohibit smoking indoors that include e-cigarettes are another way to do that, right? And so there's there's a couple of ways to think about these smoke-free laws. So first of all, um, we want to talk about prevention. When youth don't see adults smoking, we're basically denormalized. Smoking is denormalized, and kids don't see it as normal, and so they're not going to get started, right? And so, I mean, this is this is a concept that takes a couple of dots to connect. But the idea here is is that if people don't see smoking done inside or vaping done inside, then kids aren't going to see it as normal or start, right? So smoke-free laws um, and laws that prohibit smoking indoors have an effect on prevention. And uh, we've seen that for uh, smoking, and I'm quite confident that it's also the case for e-cigarettes. In terms of um, smoke-free laws also help people quit. It turns out that, you know, if you, if you feel like- you can't like, smoke at work. <laughs> that's right. If you can't smoke at work, right, you're, um, if you get a trigger and you feel like I, I need to go have a cigarette, but it's a little bit harder to do it because you can't, you're going to have to walk across the street or go somewhere else to go smoke. Uh, you know, that, it turns out that that encourages you uh, to try to quit, particularly if your workplace is really supportive. You know, when we're, when we're trying to create um, tobacco-free work sites or tobacco-free schools, we, again, these policies are not supposed to be punitive. They're not punishment, right? It, it's just that nicotine, the nicotine in e-cigarettes and, and um, tobacco products is so addictive that, that we're trying to construct environments where we maximize people's chances of successfully quitting. And so when we have smoke-free policies in places, and we have adequate resources to help people quit smoking, like, like counseling and nicotine replacement therapy, then we're really creating an environment where people are gonna be successful in their quit attempts. It takes, it takes a lot of time. Uh, it takes, uh, I think the chances of quitting cigarettes cold turkey are, oh man, I don't have the numbers in front of me. They're, they're abysmal. They're, they're like uh, one, in, one in, I think it's, your chances of quitting successfully I think without our uh, 7%. So a, a smoker on any given attempt to quit smoking has about a 7% chance of quitting smoking, right? Which means that for them to successfully uh, quit, cold turkey, to try cold, turkey. cold turkey, thank you, cold turkey, right? Yeah. So when you add mm -hmm. things like nicotine replacement therapy and counseling, you're in some cases more than doubling their chances of quitting. And so people's chances go up you know, depending on the medication, depending on the counseling, you know, closer to 20%, right? Which is still not- I think that was a board, that was a board question for addiction medicine. As it like, was. What is the most successful way of strategy of, uh, you know, nicotine cessation? And it was, you know, um, medications plus counseling. Yeah. That's right. Uh, sometimes, you know, we're, we're sometimes dual, dual medications now, things like having a patch on your arm. And then also when you're getting cravings using gum, um, and then plus counseling, right? And you're, you know, it, it depends. I think the success rate really changes depending on the, on the medication. I think Chantix is very, uh, also has a very high quit rate. But you know, my my original point here was that your chances of quitting are still uh, uh, one in five, right? And so smokers have to try to quit several times, 
And we want to construct environments where they're going to be successful. When, when they're trying to quit, they're not going to go back to their cubicle and uh, their buddy is going to ask them to go out on a smoking break and, and sabotage their successes, their attempts to quit. So these principles that apply for smoking cigarettes apply for e-cigarettes, right? If you're going to try quitting e-cigarettes, mm -hmm. same thing, not being able to smoke is, is going to have that same effect. Um, and then I, you know, point three I mentioned was unrestricted cessation, um, cessation access. You know, we have to make it as easy as possible for people to get resources to quit. Uh, and that, again, that is true of both e-cigarettes and tobacco products. And then lastly, as I'm sure you've seen, you know, the last one is hard hitting media campaigns. And um, I will say that we are fortunate in tobacco control to have a number of national partners who all have incredible you know, media campaigns that are really great. I've seen some really cool ones from the FDA recently. Uh, you know, Truth Campaign has some really wonderful uh, mm -hmm. uh, campaigns uh, aimed at youth to talk about, you know, how um, e-cigarettes hit their their pocketbook. Uh, I'm not sure pocketbook is the term that kids use. So I probably, that means I shouldn't be designing these campaigns. But anyway, so all of these principles apply. It's interesting because those campaigns stigmatize tobacco use. And I think that that's an important example that stigma against tobacco and smoking is a tool in prevention. It does not mean that the person who smokes is bad. It means that the habit is bad. And we need to learn that success story in tobacco and not be afraid to apply it to other drugs. You know, there is a national campaign about eliminating stigma, but we need to differentiate that we want to eliminate stigma for the user, the person who has a problem and needs help, but not for the use. We should not be promoting smoking or using illicit drugs. That's not healthy. Um, you know, when you mentioned cessa um, cessation access, I can tell you how that affected us in the field of emergency medicine is for several years now, anybody who smoked uh, we would tell them, and go to 1-800-NO-BUTS, and here's a way we gave them a three-minute spiel that we could bill for and charge for and getting them to smoke. And it was almost comical because we were all good about doing that, but never mind the person is, you know, using drugs and alcohol and all the other things that we just kind of let go. Uh, but but everybody got their, you know, uh, government-funded tobacco cessation spiel from their ER doctor. You know, one of the, I, again, being a public health practitioner in tobacco control, I feel fortunate in, in many ways because we have, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's double-sided, right? I think we have more resources because it is the number one cause of preventable death and disease. But I, it also helps us envision what I think good, strong public health programs look like. And I think our hard-hitting media campaigns have been um, uh, exemplar in terms of like, what does it look like to construct yes. media campaign, right? And I, one of the lessons yes. that we have, uh, learned that I think is most important for communities is that many times that we should do our best to use the media campaigns that are developed at the state and national level that have significant resources and that have been market tested to be effective. Because you never know when you're crafting media messages um, unless you're testing them thoroughly as to whether they're going to have the imp intended impact that you want. And I think one of the mistakes that we frequently make, particularly when we have less resources uh, in prevention work is trying to work at the local level to create a media campaign without doing all of the testing to ensure that we are, um, that we're, we are 
accomplishing what we set out to accomplish. That it works. Case, that it works. I, there's one example that um, um, uh, Mitch Zeller from the FDA mentioned uh, about when they were designing their most recent campaign uh, that was focused on e-cigarette prevention. I think it's called the Real Cost is the name of their campaign. And you know they they did what you sort of suggested, which is like, hey, we really should learn from tobacco and cigarettes and try to develop an e-cigarette campaign. And so one of the messages that was really effective when they were talking about cigarettes, it turns out, was to talk about how cigarettes are addictive and everybody sort of already knew, knows that cigarettes are deadly, right? And cigarettes are deadly and addictive. Yeah. And so we would message around how terrible it is to be addicted to this deadly thing. And so one of the messages that they tested out in their real cost campaign was to say, hey, don't smoke e-cigarettes. It's really addictive. And it turns out that kids these days use the term addiction really casually. They feel like they're addicted to their phones. They're addicted to Starbucks, right? They're addicted to video games. And, oh, and they, they just wow. use the term addiction. And so being That's addicted, so what? so what, right? And so they realized that this campaign yeah. that they started to design about around the concept of addiction did not resonate with their audience. And so fortunately, you know, you have the resources invested, you're testing, you pivot, you say, okay, that's not going to work. And so I think, you know, they ended up going, I think from the last real cost campaigns uh, videos that I saw, you know, what they're doing is they're talking, you know, there's some humor in there, but they're talking about the chemicals in e-cigarettes um, because they realized that, uh, that youth don't see these necessarily as dangerous chemicals in these products, right? But it, they, had to, they had to change their original message. That, is, that kind of sophistication is really hard to do at the local level. And I'm not suggesting you invest all the resources to do that at a local level if those videos and campaigns exist already at the national and state. So please, you know, if you're listening and you're thinking about starting a media campaign, go check out where you can borrow first. I think that's really important. Wow, that's really such a great example. Do you do you have other examples, or do they depend on the time? Like so a lot of the research has been done with tobacco. Do you, can you share with us like one media campaign, hard hitting media campaign that was really successful with tobacco? Uh, you know, I, I don't have the numbers on me, but the ones that come to mind, you know, around issues of, of really getting youth to think that they're being manipulated were uh, the ones I, I believe by uh, the truth campaign uh, about tobacco industry, the tobacco industry, uh, CEOs and all of, you know, all the, the sort of the classic ones where they, you know, they would have videos of them just making all these lies and, uh, or, or uh, testifying in Congress and lying and people laughing and things like that. I think that was really effective at framing for youth that they're being manipulated, that smoking isn't cool and they're being manipulated by, you know, a bunch of really uncool CEOs. Interesting. So I'm wondering if that would apply to to vaping and marijuana and other things. I mean, certainly we know um, that money has money has absolutely entered uh, the marijuana space, and we know you know I think e-cigarettes and marijuana are both separately billion-dollar industries. And I and I think we're just at the beginning of understanding what that that industry looks like. You know, we're seeing their impacts, yep. right? Which again looks like the work of the yeah. tobacco industry. Um, but yeah, it it. it we may we could may come around yeah, full same, circle again. It's 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 the same folks, just you know, uh, you know, a newer version, smarter. 
Um, does it work to say that nicotine, alcohol, marijuana, the three products that lead to lifelong struggle with addiction, a substance use disorder, um, do you use that when you talk about um, tobacco and vaping as a gateway drug? You know, I think I think the way that funding and I works. Gateway it, drug does it matter? Yeah, I I think the way that funding works sometimes, and it's unfortunate, but the way that funding works in public health programs sometimes is, you know, we get we get grant funding to work in very specific areas, and and sometimes that means that we can't comment on others, right? I I think one of the nice one of the things that I enjoy about being at CADCA is trying to understand how the strategies of tobacco control can be used in other. Um, in, in addressing other substances. And I, you know, I'm-, I'm Yeah, gonna, I love that. Yeah, I'm gonna quickly get out of my area of expertise. So you're gonna, you, you have to forgive me, but in particular, you know, when we were talking about these booster strategies, the booster strategies have a lot to do with the retail environment and where you purchase products, right? And, you know, this is something that I've been thinking about in particular as it relates to alcohol and marijuana. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, but I, you know, raising price, we, it's not quite open, as talked about openly uh, in addressing alcohol use and in alcohol prevention, but just as it is in uh, tobacco products, price is probably the most effective intervention we have at preventing uh, alcohol use, right? And, and uh, so there are likely ways at the state and local level that we can increase the price of alcohol products to prevent youth from using uh, alcohol and uh, and for something like uh, so so part of these booster policies these retail strategies that we were talking about earlier um, other some of the strategies in there could be things like I talked about ways to increase price but we can also look at retailer density or retailer proximity to schools right and so one thing that we might be able to do when looking at um, uh, marijuana might be you know restricting licenses and the number of licenses. And I know this is something that happens in many states with liquor licenses, right? But density restrictions and proximity restrictions are effective tools that we can use in tobacco control and also I'm sure uh, in other substances. Yeah, I think, I think that that's, when I think about it as far as prevention overall, you, you take a success story with tobacco, you have your you know, vaccine and booster methodology and figure out from a you know uh, a winning strategy that has been proven over time and seeing how you apply it um, to to the other to the other drugs that you're worried about. That's right. I, um, I will. Oh, can I can I give another example? I will say that one of the places when we were working with law enforcement and trying to get them as a partner for um, uh, some of our tobacco control work, and you know I like I, and I want to be clear, we weren't engaging law enforcement for. Uh, for uh, enforcing uh, penalizing youth uh, or for purchase use of possession laws with youth. But when we were, you know, it's, it, it was when we were working to set up a local retail license in the community I used to live in, we were having conversations with everybody. And one of the things that uh, law enforcement said to us was, you know, if we ever have to do work in this space, uh, having tobacco prices, having the age to purchase tobacco to be 21 makes it way easier for us to do compliance checks with retailers because, uh, you know, we'll basically be, we only have to check no one kind of ID and we don't have to have different kinds of IDs for different products. And so when we're, we're, we're basically going to be uh, doing a, 
purchases in stores for alcohol and tobacco and the ID can just be 21, right? So this was one area that uh, it turns out that we were working in tobacco, but it was gonna make life easier for law enforcement that worked in alcohol compliance checks here. Right, enforcement of, of laws to, right. for protection of youth. Yeah. Um, secondhand smoke. Um, 58 million people are exposed to secondhand smoke today. And there's, you work on policies, all the, the, the framework that you mentioned is also for secondhand smoke. Is it for tobacco and vaping and marijuana, all types of smoke? Yeah, so, so my work my work at CADCA uh, under the Geographic Health Equity Alliance is particularly focused in the Southeastern United States where people still uh, go to work and whether it's at a restaurant or a private work site or a bar and have to breathe in smoke as a part of their work. And so, and that's cigarette smoke. Um, there are a lot of states that um, are adding uh, electronic cigarette smoke, or you know, we, we prefer to call it aerosol. You know, vapor is an industry term that I think was designed to make it seem like it's water and that it's harmless, right? And so it's hard because sometimes mm -hmm. casually we use these terms and call them vapes, and people know them as vapes. But vapes is sort of a part of this language that we, you know, is associated with vapor, it is associated with harmless, right? So. You know, it's, it's really hard to change our language sometimes. Um, but basically, you know, we there we can add e-cigarette aerosol into smoke-free laws. Uh, and many states and communities are doing this across the United States. My work uh, with GIA is particularly focused in the southeast of the U.S. around smoking laws. Yeah. But it, it seems, you know, if, if you don't want to be around secondhand tobacco smoke, uh, and we know that there are associated cancer risks, from secondhand tobacco smoke, would uh, vaping be okay? <laughs> it's like, okay, we're not smoking cigarettes, we're just vaping or aerosolizing or e-cigarettes, whatever you wanna call it. And if you finally got a law that'll include all the electronic cigarettes as well as tobacco, well, you know, it's not, I'm not aerosolizing, it's just uh, marijuana smoke and it's legal. And so you have like one, you make progress in one and then you create a bigger problem and even a bigger problem. Uh, so it's interesting. It'd be, it'd be nice if we had just a general um, frame as a gold standard that for secondhand smoke is it's for all types of smoke. Uh, so, we, we, that, that if we're, we're creating, you know, a, a general public health policy should apply to all types of smoke as a gold standard. And of course, you're going to work with each area to get what you can get. I could not agree with you more. And if you are listening to this and you're you're interested in understanding what that gold standard is, uh, the American Non-Smokers Rights Foundation is the national tobacco control partner that uh, basically designs the smoke-free gold standard laws. And their laws include, uh, just as you suggested, smoking of cigarettes or any tobacco products include um, uh, e-cigarette aerosol and marijuana. And you know, the again, this is quickly getting outside of my area of expertise, but I, my colleagues who work in this space in in um, in several states uh, out west have said that the marijuana industry in states where mar uh, where marijuana is being legalized is working to undermine smoke-free laws uh, to make exemptions for smoking of marijuana mm -hmm. indoors. So we're fighting the same of these same struggles. Um, but I think I believe that the American Non-Smokers Rights Foundation law uh, does have. Uh, all of those products included. How do you engage youth in tobacco and vaping control? I mean, CADCA is all about prevention and in youth. And so how do you, 
how do you reach that uh, special population? You know, youth, I think youth involvement in tobacco control has been another uh, success of our work, right? I, I, youth are the replacement smokers for the tobacco industry. I mean, you know, tobacco, I think cigarettes are the only product when used as intended that kill their user. And uh, basically we have industry documents that, you know, decades of industry documents that show that the industry targets young people to get them addicted so that they create lifelong smokers. And so, you know, as targets of this industry, uh, I think it is only right that we involve youth in this work in addressing a problem in which they, you know, they are, um, they are targeted by a billion dollar industry. So generally I would say, you know, tobacco control has been very good at uh, engaging youth in a variety of, of ways in public health work. Uh, I think the, the origins of some of this work used to be, you know, I, again, I, I, like some of the work in Florida uh, comes to mind of, of having sort of the, the having youth very involved with some of their hard hitting media campaigns. Um, but particularly these days, I think, I think what the, the gold standard to use that phrase again for youth involvement in tobacco control, and I would just say public health in general is to really have youth become uh, partners in developing upstream solutions to some of these problems. And that means working in their communities and being good democratic citizens and working to pass policies and laws that protect uh, their fellow youth and um, fellow citizens. So, so in other words, I, I think the most effective way to work with youth is to, is to have them as equal partners at the table doing the solid public health work that we do, which is focusing on, on um, upstream interventions. I, I love that about CADCA and, um, and and they say, that, you know, we usually think about youth as leaders of tomorrow and you're in CADCA says, no, they're leaders today. And, and partners today. So that's very nice. You might have noticed that I, that we're talking about youth and we're talking about smoking and we're talking about e-cigarettes and we haven't really talked about schools. And, you know, I, I guess I sort of do this on purpose because uh, everywhere I go to work and support this issue, this issue is like most visible of the e-cigarette epidemic is most visible in schools. And you know, prior to the pandemic, you know, there were just just school districts everywhere were figuring out how to deal with large numbers of their students being addicted. And many, and we have seen different types of solutions all across this this country. Uh, and as as schools have been struggling, we're we're struggling to address this, and we're trying to figure out what can we do. And some schools, you know, I think what may, may have gone the compassionate route and may have tried to provide cessation support and may also look outside of the walls of their schools to try to focus on some of the things that I've been talking about today. And then other schools uh, really put the blame on, uh, you know, perhaps not explicitly, but perhaps the way that they think about the, their policies on the youth for becoming addicted themselves and uh, framing this as a choice that the youth made and expelling them for continuing to be addicted to e-cigarettes. And I think one of the tragic things that has happened is that many school districts have tried to expel their way out of this problem. And in many school districts, you, I think we go back and look at the data, you can see that uh, e-cigarettes were basically the leading cause of school expulsions and suspensions. 
Uh, and that's tragic. And if we don't have time to go into that, you know, but, you know, I'll just say that clearly. Those are the impact. kids who need the education yeah. in the safe environment the most. Exactly. Right. And, uh, but, but clearly we cannot expel our way out of this. Right. And um, so a lot of my, you know, this is my colleagues that do this work all across the United States have been thinking about, well, what, what does it look like for schools to have a role in this? What can schools do, but what also can schools not do, right? And so, you know, I, it's, it's hard. I've been in scenarios where I've been chatting with school administrators and school board members and, you know, trying to basically say, look, I know you're mostly focused on what you can do in schools, but this is like, if you want to help prevent e-cigarette use in your community, you're going to have to work on something like banning flavors or going to have to work on something like limiting the number of e-cigarette and tobacco stores literally outside of your school, right? Like it, like it, <laughs> the solutions to your problem cannot right. be just, you know, and, and unfortunately, I mean, it breaks my heart, but we've seen school districts, you know, do things like have security cameras right, in the bathrooms to try to catch kids vaping, right? And, and you know, I, I, know, I know schools are doing their best and America puts incredible pressure on schools to solve many of our societal problems. Um, you know, but I, what we've been trying to do is make the conversation be a more compassionate one. You know, really think about instead of penalizing youth that have been targeted by a billion dollar industry with deliciously flavored products and incredible marketing campaigns with a, one of the most addictive products that we know and not punish them for that. Nicotine. Right. And instead, you know, what's really hard, what's really hard is to think about how do we how do we shower a school district with cessation resources to take, to, you know, to help now it's 20% of students who are addicted to this product quit, right? And I, I, was, I was at a, um, I, was, um, I was speaking in front of uh, several hundred youth uh, in, a, in a school district in the Southeast. And I asked them, and I was giving a, a presentation um, on e-cigarettes and I asked them, I said, do, do me a favor, can you raise your hand if you know somebody who's trying to quit e-cigarettes? And, you know, at least 90% raised their hands. And I almost, I, I started tearing up on the podium because this was, this was like right in front of me. You know, we see the numbers, right? We see the numbers, but I just saw a room full of, you know, hundreds of kids all raised their hands. I'm surprised that they, that they were aware that they're addicted. Because when I, I talk to people, it's like, oh, no, I can keep most of the people who are in the emergency department throwing up from marijuana poisoning that they've been using for 10 years don't think that they have an addiction. So th so the fact that you got all those people to raise their hand, I'm surprised because I, didn't, I think that they would think that, oh, well, well we're using, but I, I could quit any time if I wanted to. This is this is anecdotal, and you know, I I I was at a again pre-pandemic. I was at a music show, and uh, for and uh, I was I really liked the artist that I went to see. It was still Woozy was the name of the artist, and I was I was just a big fan. And I wanted you know I my my poor girlfriend. I said we're gonna get there early, and we got there an hour early so we could be up front. And uh, you know when I got there early, it was me. And my girlfriend and all of the high school youth who also love Still Woozy. And I was, you know, this is around the time that we're talking about the, the, the you know, we're, we're starting to see this be uh, declared an epidemic. And right, all of a sudden the room, the concert, it was a small intimate venue, but it started smelling like syrup, maple syrup. And I'm like, what 
is going on? And it didn't occur to me. And I turn around and I see these kids drooling right next to me. And uh, I'm like, wow, this is like the Surgeon General's report come to life in front of my very eyes. And one of them pulls it out and gets ready to, you know, is smoking it and literally says, I can't quit. And then gives it to their friend. And I don't know if they know what addiction is, right? But they know that they have tried to quit and they can't quit. And I, it was like, this is, this moment was stood in my mind because, you know, I, you know, we, again, we read about this, but I got to, you know, I got to see it and I got to see a group of kids basically pass around an e-cigarette and one of them turned it down and the others are like, oh, I don't really want to do this, but I just can't stop, you know? And I, and, and so I'm not sure if they entirely understand addiction in a scientific way, but I'm, I, I took it as I'm confident that they, uh, want to try to stop, but they don't know why they can't. And maybe they think they can, but you know, these aren't, these aren't like entirely coherent thoughts. I can't imagine how hard it yeah. must be to be addicted. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's right. It's like, maybe, maybe that's the, the word, you know, making a difference. Okay. I'm not addicted. Um, but can you stop? And it's like, well, I could, if I want to, I just don't want to, or that's what, those are the yeah. things that I, that I kind of hear about, you know, one of the things that, that I'm really proud of that I did while I was working at uh, ONDCP, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, um, is uh, we were getting ready for DEA take back day. We take back uh, unwanted, unused prescriptions. And this was at the peak of the vaping epidemic where people were dying. And, and I say, well, what can we do? I said, well, we need to take back vaping pens, not just prescription drugs. We're doing better at prescription drugs right now. It would send a strong measure. Let's throw away these things that's encouraged take back. And I reached out to the Office of Tobacco, even though our office doesn't deal with tobacco. We only deal with drugs and, you know, tobacco is a different office, but, you know, mm -hmm. if you're working at the White House, you can reach all the different offices and, and they were able to give me all these statistics and we uh, wrote a little protocol and boom, we we're able to, um, for communities who want to, DEA take back day is not just for prescriptions. You can take back uh, the vaping products that were literally killing people. Oh, that's great. So, that was some cool things. And let me ask you about something else that you do for CADCA. You're the director of the Geographic Health Equity Alliance. What does that mean, Geographic Health Equity? So, so uh, my my role as the director of the Geographic Health Equity Alliance is uh, I we we've built a network of partners that are working to reduce what we call geographic health disparities. And that is differences in health behaviors and health outcomes related to where people live, work, and play. You probably heard that your zip code, you know, that where you are born or where you live has a huge impact on your health. Um, and when it comes to uh, smoking and tobacco use and e-cigarette use, it turns out that the state and the community that you're born in has a huge impact on whether or not, um, you know, you might end up, your chances of ending up smoking. And so we are one of eight CDC funded national networks. Um, the, the basic idea is that we, well, while uh, we have made incredible gains in tobacco prevention to reduce smoking, those gains have not been um, equal across all different populations for a variety of different reasons, which I'll talk about in a second. But basically we know that um, uh, LGBTQ populations smoke at higher rates, active duty service members, uh, people living in the Southeast and the Midwest. Um, and 
what what the CDC I think has very intentionally done now is said, look, we've made some good gains, but um, we have we need to be more thoughtful about how we ensure that everybody benefits from the work that we're doing. And so, uh, our our the Geographic Health Equity Alliance is one of eight networks that focuses on a priority population. And so we focus we focus basically. Uh, in rural communities and the Southeast and the Midwest. Because it turns out that those places are the places that don't have all the things, all the, all the elements of the tobacco control vaccine that I mentioned earlier. Uh, they don't have high, high tobacco prices. They don't have smoke-free laws. They don't have cessation access, right? And they don't have money for media campaigns. And so it's, I guess, you know, if the biggest thing that we do is try to communicate that there, it's no accident that certain populations smoke at higher rates, right? It's not, we didn't end up here by chance, right? It's like the, the people in the South smoke at higher rates because their tobacco is cheaper and you can smoke indoors. And, you know, there's nothing that's particularly different than, you know, Southern Americans from Western Americans and Northern Americans. It's many cases, the environment in which we live uh, sets up our chances and, and has a huge impact in our health, right? So, so we really, our work is to bring attention to these disparities, but not just the disparities and say that they're different, but also the drivers of these disparities. And, and you know, hopefully I've communicated exactly. today, those drivers are really the differences in policies. Particularly in tobacco, it's easier to understand, right? Like, I, look, if you're gonna compare, you know, if you're gonna compare states, you could say in Georgia, you can smoke indoors, although huge success, you know, Atlanta very recently is now a smoke-free city, right? But, you know, many parts of Georgia, you can smoke indoors in worksite restaurants and bars. And, and I, you know, I, I, we all, we've heard that we all live in bubbles. But, right? but you know what, if you compare, uh, I don't know, Georgia that doesn't have these uh, vaccine type laws and California that does have these laws, you will find lower rates of smoking in, you know, uh, area A versus area B. That's, That's right. just science, right? That's right. <laughs> yep. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, in many ways, my job, I don't want to say it's not, it's, it's a bit simple in some ways because, you know, we, we know what we're trying to accomplish. It doesn't mean getting there is easy. It is incredibly challenging sometimes in the, in the political context and, and environment and with less public health resources to implement the things that we know work in the Southeast and the Midwest, right? But we know what works and we have so many examples of it just working, um, but there are places that don't. And you know what, those, the people that live in those places, they don't get a fair shot, right? They, they basically, they have all sorts of, of other stressors. Uh, they have, you know, likely more uh, retailers, advertising, you know, again, tobacco products are more accessible and they have higher smoking rates. I was looking at the data and the presentation that you sent me, and it showed where health disparities occur. And one of the data points really struck me, and that was the Behavioral Health Association, uh, the population that has the highest association of tobacco use at 63% more than any other group. And that made sense to me because we know at the brain level, uh, where nicotine works on the receptors, there is an association with schizophrenia, and nicotine actually decreases the negative psychoactive effects of schizophrenia. 
And we, we used to pass out boxes of cigarettes at behavioral health wards all over the world. And years later, this population really had the worst time with COPD and emphysema. Cigarettes, nicotine helps with anxiety. Yeah, we know that that actually helps. You reach out for a cigarette and it helps calm you down. But it also causes heart disease and stroke and is not healthy. Yeah, yeah. There's, you know, again, this is this this is um, uh, this gets a little bit outside of my area of expertise. But I I um, I have done some work in, and I think there's going to be some increased work over the next couple of years on having tobacco-free um, uh, behavioral health campuses. Uh, I, I think that we we do we have California. Do. our behavioral health unit does not allow smoking no and so we have standing orders for nicotine patches oh wonderful. yeah and we thought that that would be such a horrible thing that you know um, that you're taking the population that is the most addicted to uh, tobacco and say sorry you can't smoke in order to get mental health care and it, it works you, yeah. you think it'd be really hard but we we offer nicotine patches and and alternatives. Yeah, that's is uh, that's a uh, well, that's really wonderful to hear, and that is you know that is the model that we're going to be striving for across the United States. One of our other uh, national networks uh, actually works specifically on this population, uh, and, um, and yeah, it makes me mad because they're the most vulnerable people who have mental health issues. They're the most vulnerable, and yet you know the the big tobacco preyed on them, and they became the biggest. Um, losers and and had the in and i mean by as far as health loss um because of tobacco and then, and now they're the hardest ones to get to quit because i see that happening now with marijuana because oh it helps with anxiety it helps with this or that and now they're the population that the, the that's the most preyed upon and at the end of the day will suffer the most losses and it'll be the hardest um to get to quit and it's like a playbook um, for, for harms. Yeah, that's right. And I, you know, I, I think our national partners all agree with your sentiment and you're going to see over the next five years, a very concerted effort, uh, on, on, uh, on addressing, um, uh, or working on tobacco-free policies for behavioral health, um, uh, campuses. You're going to see that I think actually is going to be one of the top po po policy priorities for tobacco control programs. That's great. Yeah. So um, hopefully we taught our audience everything they wanted to know about tobacco and, and vaping. Is, uh, is there anything else you want to add? Uh, no, I, I just want to go back to just real quickly the role of the schools. And because I, I just feel like I do want, if you're listening and you're wondering what can you do in schools, I just want to make a plea that we, uh, we are really creative if we're trying to help youth uh, quit smoking. Should, if schools, you know, this is, is weird because I, I haven't talked about this as much during COVID, right? But when, when schools open back up and uh, youth are back in schools, I think it's gonna be important that we think really creatively about how do we offer support? How do we not just punish our way out of this? Particularly, you know, given that, you know, I think there's a lot of literature to support that punitive measures in, in for tobacco control and in schools are, you know, are disproportionately impact uh, African-American youth, Latinx youth, right? And so how do, we, how do we do this compassionately and how do we actually help a generation of 
kids that are addicted to nicotine quit. And I think we're going to have to do a little bit more than, than, uh, than just suspend kids or, uh, boy, even just hand out flyers. I mean, you know, it. I think schools, if they really want to support this, are going to have to figure out how do we offer cessation classes during lunch or during class, or how do we how do we partner with a hospital to get you know to figure to get counselors in to support um, our school district. Like it's going to take a lot of creativity at the school level. But I, you know, my my plea is that we think about compassionate support for youth. A whole, we, we, it's a bit late, just as you said, it's been one of our failures. We're a bit late now, and we now have a generation of youth who are addicted. And so it's really important that while we're still working in prevention, that we also think really seriously about how do we help them quit. That's great. That's an important point. And do you have advice for Gabriella Williamson, who sent us the question about, about youth tobacco and vaping? Get involved with your local substance use prevention coalition or your local tobacco prevention coalition or any public health coalition at the local level and uh, try to see which elements of the tobacco control vaccine that I mentioned today exist in your community, exist in your state, and and start making sure that those different elements are there. You know, there's always good work to be done in public health. Uh, and go go find go find your coalitions and start building some partnerships. And best of luck and contact me if you need anything. Well, it's great. We we need that uh, vaccine strategy with boosters uh, wherever wherever you live. And if it's not there, then you should get vaccinated. Um, so, Gabriella, I want to thank you also for your question and your leadership and for asking great questions. Um, that is also a sign of having a great future ahead. And Andrew Romero, thank you for your leadership at CADCA, um, your work in geographic health equity, um, your your extensive knowledge really for tobacco That's I think is an example for uh, other types of drugs of addiction. I think you have a winning formula on your hand. So I wish you the best of success in your vital work. Thank you so much for, for having me. And I really loved our chat. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from CADCA, Community Anti-Drug Coalitions of America. CADCA builds drug-free communities across the United States, U.S. territories, and over 30 countries across the globe. Every day, CADCA trains. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us at hightruths.com. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.